0: All right, let's turn once again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Have you ever been asked a question by someone that you knew was intended to get you into trouble? And that no matter how you answered it, the outcome was not going to be good for you. And this is the tactic that the Jewish religious establishment of Jerusalem was using against Jesus. They wanted to discredit him before the eyes of the people to quash any sense of authority he may have had over them and eventually uh, turn him over to the Roman authorities. Now, this has been going on since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week. And on the first day, his supporters honored him as the son of David, the rightful king of Israel. And Jesus arrived in the temple the next day, and he disrupted the uh, normal activities, really the business activities of the money changers and the merchants, who turned the house of the Lord, the house of prayer, into a hiding place for thieves. He was confronted by members of the Jewish high court about his authority to do such a horrible thing, And then he associated his authority with that of the last great prophet, John the Baptist, who himself indicated that Jesus was the one coming greater than he. And finally, Jesus taught them a parable about a vineyard that clearly indicated he was the last in a long line of people sent from God to gather fruit from his people, but he was greater than the others because he was the son and heir, and he would become the chief cornerstone of the new temple of God made without hands. Now, the combat with religious authorities continues through the rest of chapter 12. The Sanhedrin, or the Jewish high court, sends a wide array of people to confront Jesus with questions Intended to entrap him and uh, uh, trip him up in his answers so they could get him into trouble. First of all, they send the Pharisees and the Herodians, which really were kind of strange bedfellows, they come with a political, religious question about taxes. Next, he's approached by a group of Sadducees with a theological question concerning the resurrection. And finally, a single scribe comes and brings a question, what is the first and great commandment? But the Lord Jesus is not fooled by the motivation or the content of these questions, and he answers them in all his divine wisdom. He's not entrapped, and he teaches his enemies a lesson about the true interpretation of scripture on all these levels. His spiritual authority continues to shine through all of these different ploys, so much so that we find his listeners once again marvel at his wisdom and his enemies actually fear to ask any more questions of him. And we too learn much from what he says, but most of all we see the wisdom that proves Jesus is the servant son of God. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning, as we uh, look to uh, this program of trying to trip up the Lord Jesus Christ, we would see his wonderful wisdom and how he handled himself, how he properly interpreted uh, scripture, and really shut the mouths of his critics. Lord, we realize from what he says in our study today that we owe you everything. We may have to pay taxes to Caesar, But the most important thing is we give you your due. We worship and honor you above all things. And also we have information here, Lord, about the resurrection in some respects. And we pray, Lord, you help us to realize that we should be looking forward to life in heaven with you. And uh, that we will be raised again someday in the future. Bless our study, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, the first thing that we're going to look at here, going back to chapter 12, verse 13, Mark's gospel, is Jesus' wise response to a question about taxes. Now, that's a pretty big concern of ours today, isn't it? One of our big complaints today is about paying taxes. And most of us feel that we pay too much in local, state, federal, uh, sales tax, and every other kind of tax we can think of, and that much of the tax money we give or uh, part with is not spent wisely. And this group of authorities was using a question of this nature about the Roman poll tax to make Jesus take sides in an issue that might put him in harm's way no matter which way he answered it. So let's take a look here at this ploy of the Pharisees and the Herodians. In verse 13, we're told, then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, who are they? We got to back up to the previous chapter. We know that when Jesus was confronted, he was confronted by uh, chief priests and uh, 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 scribes, and they were again upset about what Jesus had done. On that first day, he enters and clears the temple courts. We believe this... uh, Current uh, issue takes place on Wednesday of Passover week. And uh, according to chapter 11, verse 27, the previous day he was approached by chief priests, scribes, elders, members of the high court of the Jews. And it is this group that now sends these different delegations to pose questions to Jesus. Now we've met the Pharisees. We know that they were a conservative religious sect in Judaism. They were the legalists uh, who appear to be very righteous on the outside, but really they're very hypocritical in their actions. They're paired with the Herodians, which we've also met. Uh, they're more of a political party. They support the Herodian dynasty, which is all uh, hooked up with uh, Rome, and there was really not a whole lot of love lost between these two groups, but as we've mentioned before, in the case of getting rid of Jesus, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so that's why these two are come together. Now, it's obvious that their purpose is nefarious. They come to Jesus, in verse 13, to catch him in his words. And that verb, to catch, is interesting. It means uh, it's something that's used of hunting or catching animals for food. So they're hunting for a way to trap Jesus into saying something that they can use against him, either politically or religiously. And their approach to Jesus, as they they come to him, again is one of deceitful flattery. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth and yada, yada, yada. They're flattering the Lord Jesus. They're kind of buttering him up a little bit. Certainly, we don't believe that what they're saying to him is something they really believe because they wouldn't have been approaching him this way in the first place. Um, What they do say, however, about him is absolutely true. He is a teacher or a rabbi, even though their group has not recognized him as such. He is true in his character and he is not a respecter of persons. When it says here, you care about no one, that's similar to the phrase in the next uh, line, uh, you do not regard the person of men. In other words, he's not a people pleaser. He speaks the word of God in truth. He doesn't care what uh, these factions may believe. He doesn't care what the, uh, uh, the the Uh, sayings of the day are all about. uh, He is concerned about speaking the truth. He's not influenced by current opinion or established traditions, and they have found this out by experience as they have heard him, and they've seen his great influence among the people. Now, the last phrase, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, you teach the way of God in truth. Now, I really doubt that they thought that or believe that. Again, they're, they're not sincere in what they're saying. They don't believe he taught the ways of God and truth, at least not the ways they thought that he should. But deep down inside, it may well, believe, uh, uh, it may well be that they did believe this, and they, they were being convicted by some of the things that he said. And what he says turned upside down their comfortable way of living and worshiping God. And so again, they're coming with this purpose of flattery. We all know what that is. It's to put you off guard so you might be uh, taken advantage of in some way. And as they do this, they then pop this political question with religious undertones. Is it lawful? Is it permissible to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay this tax? Now, let's go back into history. Let's take a look at the background here and see what uh, they're, they're getting at, what they're talking about. In AD 6, Judea became a province of Rome and an annual poll tax was imposed upon its citizens of one denarius every year. Uh, That's about a day's wage. And some of the Jews objected to this, and they would not pay it, because they believed it honored Caesar, it infringed upon their religious beliefs, and this group came to be known as the Zealots, And eventually, they would lead the revolt against Rome in 66 AD, which would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So they're very uh, strict in their beliefs, and they felt uh, uh, they objected to this tax uh, because it had to be paid to Rome in silver coinage. Uh, not the unmarked copper coins that was most commonly used back in the day. Now, the Roman coin bore the image of the emperor's head, like our coins bear uh, the image of different uh, presidents or famous people in our history, and it's engraved in God We Trust, So on their coins, they would have this similar type engraving. Only Caesar's head, who was ruling at that time, would appear on that coin. And what they really were upset about was the Latin abbreviations that related to him. It would read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So they objected to that and if you turn the coin over it's written Pontifex Maximus which means high priest. So in their thinking this was blasphemous and it would be idolatrous for them to use these coins and then if we paid them to Caesar we're giving homage to Caesar uh, above God himself so they would not uh, pay the uh, the, the poll tax. Now the Pharisees didn't like paying that tax. They didn't really agree with it, but they paid it anyways. The Herodians, who, of course, supported Rome as well as the Sadducees, well, they didn't have any problem with it at all because they were pro-Roman. So what was the trap? If Jesus said, no, you don't have to pay the tax, well, that would upset uh, uh, the, the Roman authorities, and the Roman authorities could get him into trouble if he was reported. If he said, yes, you do have to pay the tax, well, that would infuriate the zealots, uh, and he would lose their support. So in their minds, this is a catch-22. He's going to get it one way or the other. But when Jesus answers, we see his wisdom Because he really doesn't fall fully on either side. And he points out their own hypocrisy. So we look at verse 15, uh, the last part of the verse. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them. So first of all, Jesus is aware of the hypocritical nature of what they're trying to do. He knows they do not mean what they say, and he knows that they are testing him. He mentions that here. Why do you test me? Why do you tempt me? In the context here, they're they're trying to put something in his way that will trip him up. He's aware of that. And their purpose is that he will fail, and they can uh, somehow get rid of him through this. And we need to understand today that Jesus always knows our true motivation to what we say and what we do. We too are often guilty of flattery or covering our, our, our feelings. Sometimes it's wise to do that. Sometimes it's wise to hold back what we really think, but never for a nefarious or selfish purpose as these people were uh, trying to, to do. Jesus saw through this whole ploy. Then Jesus asked them a question, as he often does to explain what the position should be. Bring me a denarius that I may see it. Okay, so what does that tell you? Well, first of all, Jesus didn't have one. So Jesus is not using that particular coinage. But they bring one to him. So guess what? They are using it they're big hypocrites. This is something that they have in hand. This is something they're using all the time and they're trying to trick him with it. So they're being big hypocrites about the whole situation. So they're using the money. Jesus is not. But if they're using that money, then they're under the obligations of the authority who coins that money. Now, Jesus then asked them whose image and inscription is on the coin?" Well, that was simple. You just have to look at it. And as I just explained, you would see the head of Caesar Tiberius, and you would see the, the imprints of uh, uh, the accolades toward him. So uh, there it is laid out before them. And the answer that Jesus then gives to them doesn't really come down on either side because he says to them, Verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's really not all that difficult. Now, when he says to render to Caesar, that verb means to give back. So where where do the coins come from? Uh, Today, they come from printing presses and we just print money like it's going out of style. Uh, But who prints that? The government prints that. The government puts their stamps upon it. So it comes from the government. In a sense, they own it, and we use it for our benefit. So we're under obligation then to give back or pay back to the government what they say we owe. And the situation was the same back in that day. Um, Caesar prints the coins and you are requested to give this particular coin once a year as a poll tax, Jesus says there's nothing wrong with doing that. It belongs to Caesar, so we pay to Caesar what is due him. It doesn't mean you're worshiping Caesar. It doesn't mean you're somehow offending God by the use of a secular coin. So he doesn't really stand with the viewpoint of the zealot, uh, uh, and you're not committing idolatry or dishonoring God by paying that secular tax. But what he goes on to say is even more important when he says to render to God the things that are God's. That's the main thing. That's the, the issue we should be concerned with. We owe God something. We actually owe God everything because everything belongs to the Lord. Everything's owned by him. What he requires of us is our faith, our worship, our obedience, our love. All these things are of a higher realm, and we should be paying these things to God and not worry quite so much about the other things. These are things that must be rendered to him. So Jesus does not elucidate what those things are, but These people who knew the Old Testament law should have known what those things were, and uh, they should have realized that it's more important to be concerned about what you give God than what you give to mankind. All right, so today we pay our taxes to the government, and in exchange we get certain benefits. We pay what we owe. We don't have to pay more than what we owe. We can uh, uh, use all the means that we can to pay only what we owe. But if the government uses those funds in a wrong way or a wrong purpose, we're not held accountable by God for that. The government will be. But more importantly, we give the Lord his due. That's the most important concern of the life of a Christian. Again, we owe him everything. We owe our life to him. We owe our possessions, our health, our salvation. And in return, we give him our worship and our service and our affection 100%. So that's what we want to really take away from this, is are we giving God what is his due? Now, that leads up to another group coming to the Lord Jesus. Uh, probably shortly after this first group comes, verse 18, then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him a question. Uh, The first and only time Mark uses uh, this term is right here, the Sadducees. We don't really know much about them. My old pastor used to say they didn't believe in the resurrection. They only believed in some of the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't believe in angels, so they were sad, you see. And that's a corny joke. But anyways, uh, it's true. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, They mainly consisted of the uh, aristocratic party, uh, the, the priestly families in Jerusalem. So... Uh, High priests could be Sadducees, uh, and uh, they would be chief priests. So they would have been in uh, the group, some of them, that was sent by the Sanhedrin. They would have been in that high court. They did believe in the authority of the Old Testament, but chiefly the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. So if a doctrine was not clearly defined in the first five books of the Bible, they did not hold to it. And one such belief was the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Old Testament does not really give a clear picture of resurrection. We can go to a very few passages and say, this really looks like resurrection, But they rejected it because they could find nothing in the first five books of the law to support it. To them, Sheol, or the grave, was the final resting place of a person. And the only way a person kept on living or might be resurrected would be in your mind as you remembered them uh, in the past. So that's why having a posterity was so important to some of the Jews, so there would be people in the future who could think back and remember who you were. And that's probably what's involved here in the question that they ask. So what do they do? They, of course, draw upon the law of Moses and his instruction, given back in, in uh, Deuteronomy 25. Uh, what is called the law of leveret marriage, which they explain here. Teacher Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So what that means is that your brother... Uh, Would take your place, he would raise a child in your name, and in that way, your name would not vanish in history, and uh, the child that came from that would carry on your name. So that's the scenario here, and we really only have two examples of it in the Old Testament, so we don't really know if this was practiced then or not, but they're using this uh, to try to disparage the belief in resurrection, which they apparently believe Jesus was in agreement with. The Pharisees would have believed in this, and they're trying to make it look like believing in a resurrection, a bodily resurrection, is just foolish and dumb, because in their scenario, uh, uh, a husband dies, the first husband dies, he's got a bunch of brothers, and every one of them who takes the wife, which by number three, I think would have been unwise. Uh, they die, and they're married, uh, the, the wife is married to the next brother, on and down the line. So all of them had her as a wife. So when you get to the resurrection, who, whose wife is she going to be? And uh, they thought, well, this just makes resurrection life look, look foolish. And they don't think Jesus is going to be able to answer it. And maybe this is something they posed to Pharisees from time to time and made a big joke about it because of their view of the resurrection. Now, uh, that seems a bit far-fetched to us as an example, but have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, well, uh, a Christian uh, had a divorce in their history and they got remarried? Or your spouse died and you got remarried. And you think about, wow, what's, how is this going to work out in heaven someday? So it's not really all that far when we think about you know, resurrection eternal life. So Jesus gives an answer here. And uh, I don't know if it helps us out or not, but this is what Jesus says. And he gives another wise answer about the resurrection. And he responds in a twofold way as he explains the error of interpretation of these Sadducees. In verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? Okay, now you're a Sadducee, you've been studying the scriptures, you may know by heart large portions of the law of God, and this fellow comes along, uh, this upstart, and he says, you're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures. That would have been a blow to them. That probably would have made them mad right there because Jesus says you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. So you're not thinking correctly about the scriptures. Therefore, you're mistaken. You're in error. And they're probably, you know, in their, at least in their mind, uh, deeply grumbling by what Jesus said in this first sentence. Okay, so the, the Pentateuch may not specifically mention a doctrine of resurrection, but it's strongly suggested, and Jesus is going to explain that. But first, he shows that things in heaven are not an extension of things on earth when we are raised up in a spiritual body to dwell in the heavenly realm, things are going to be different than they are on the earth. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So in heaven, there is no need for a marital state People aren't going to get married in heaven like they do in earthly life. That's not something God has planned for the future. One reason is uh, there is no longer going to be a need to propagate the human race. So you don't need this type of relationship. And, of course, uh, angels in heaven never have had that kind of a relationship. They don't need to reproduce. Uh, God made them once for all, and uh, they're uh, uh, eternal in nature, and they're going to go on living. So it's going to be more like that kind of relationship because heavenly things are different than earthly things. The same things that happen here don't necessarily need to happen in heaven or perpetuate in heaven what has started here. Now, uh, I just want to put in there that, that when we're in heaven, we're going to be the bride of Christ. He's going to be the eternal bridegroom, and we are the eternal bride. Our focus is going to be transformed from the things of earthly life to perfect heavenly life. And the first person that you're going to be looking for when you arrive in heaven is not going to be a relative or your spouse. It's going to be the Lord Jesus. He's going to be the focus of your life in a way that you've not experienced before for all of eternity. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have a relationship or recognize people that you were close to in this life, but it's not going to be exactly the same as it was. The Lord's going to be central uh, to our life in a way that we have not been able to fully know because of our nature, and it's going to be more fulfilling than anything we can imagine or we can experience. Now, that might not sound very comforting to some of you right now, but I promise you, it's true, because God says, but as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So we... Um, think about this. We wonder about it, but we have to trust that what God has prepared for us is greater than what we can even imagine, and trust that. So what God has planned uh, for our eternal life is going to be far greater than all the good things we've experienced and enjoyed in this life. Now, getting back to the question concerning the resurrection of the dead, Jesus takes them to the incident of Moses and the burning bush. This is in the book of Exodus chapter 3. And so they've asked the question out of the law. He wisely answers the question out of the law. They would have uh, confirmed that this was truly the word of God, something you have to abide by. So in his wisdom, he goes to a passage that they cannot refute or deny the authority of. Now, in that story, you know what, uh, uh, the, what the background is. You know that Moses saw this burning bush in the wilderness, and he approached it, and God began to speak to him and reveal himself to Moses in this miraculous way. And when the Lord spoke to Moses, he addressed himself as the living God of the patriarchs, I am. Uh, That conveys him as the eternal God who, um, he doesn't say I was, but I am eternally uh, present. I'm always living. I'm not past, present, and future. I'm I'm just present. So this present God, the all-living God, is the God of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, at the time that the Lord appeared to him, these men have been dead for centuries. Uh, We would allude to them and say, well, Abraham died, and Jacob died, and Isaac died, and they've been dead for a long, long time. Physically speaking, that was true, but in God's uh, uh, reality, it's not true. They're with him in glory. So what this all implies is that um, God is not the God of people who are in the grave, who are in Sheol, whose bodies uh, have decomposed. He's the God of the living. So that implies that the patriarchs live not just in the memories of God's people, but they're really alive in the presence of God. And the covenant relationship that they entered into with God in the Old Testament was not a temporal um, situation, it was eternal in nature, it was forever in nature. So the living God has the power to keep their spirits alive, and if he's able to do that, he's able to raise them up in a bodily form to live forever someday. So their argument uh, really is, is lacking in thought. And in this respect, the Sadducees were greatly mistaken. As one commentator put it, resurrection is not a matter of human potential, but divine power. Their rejection of it is the product of a secular perspective. And sometimes I think that perhaps we uh, think of uh, God in heaven and our future with him in Too much of a secular way. And that's the way they were viewing things, and they were totally wrong. So, what are we taught by these uh, attempts to get Jesus uh, to incriminate himself, shall we say? Well, first of all, what comes across to us, again, is the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when all this is going on, it's not just him and these groups who come that may have a few men in them. There are people mulling all over uh, the the city of Jerusalem, and they're coming to the temple on a regular basis. There were probably hundreds, uh, maybe more, in the temple, and they can overhear these things, this back and forth. And we're told at the end of verse 17, they marveled at him. Not just the people who brought the question, but anybody else who may have been there. And this uh, particular term is kind of a superfluous one. It's the, the biggest one you could use to get across their sensibility, their feeling of what Jesus had done. So he's impacting the people in the city who were not as familiar with him as the Galileans and some Judeans who lived outside of the city. And they're thinking that Jesus is really amazing in how he answers this question. And we've seen this again from time to time. There's no question that Jesus cannot answer about life. There's nothing he doesn't have the right perception about. He always gets to the point. He always corrects erroneous thinking. He uses his divine authority and scripture to put people on the right path. And we should be thankful that he still does that today through the word of God, the Bible. And so the wisdom of Christ himself is before us, and we need to follow it. We need to practice it. Then we have the issue here of Caesar and God. And again, we're not offending God by paying taxes, even to... Uh, a government that may be involved in a lot of unrighteous endeavors. The Lord is going to hold us accountable for paying what we owe. Every year I make sure... I don't pay more than that, the best of my ability, and all of us should probably do that. But I realize I do owe something, and we need to remember that some good things come from that, such as police protection, military defense, transportation systems, some aspects of health care, and a bunch of other things. Political leaders are going to be held accountable for all the illicit expenditures and the wrong things they're doing with money. We're not going to be held accountable to that. We're, uh, where our responsibility ends is when we give what we owe, and God will honor that. Somebody else is spending it, and how they do so, God will judge. More importantly, though, as we look at this passage, are we giving back to God what we owe him? Are are we living for him? Is he the most important person in our life? Are we focused more on the things of this life, like rendering to Caesar? uh, uh, are we focused on what we render to God, what we offer to him? Do we honor him and glorify him in all that we do? So we need to be conscious really in a greater way of giving to God what is due him, what we're responsible to him for rather than these things of earthly life. And then finally, what about the resurrection? Well, there's no doubt as you go through the rest of the New Testament that there's going to be a bodily resurrection of all people, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting death. So we need to be... uh, Uh, conscious and uh, uh, careful about which end of that we're going to be um, arriving at. Are we going to experience everlasting life with the Lord or everlasting death in hell? Jesus makes it possible for us to experience eternal life. So are you going to be a part of the resurrection to life? Do you know Jesus as your Savior who paid the price for your sin And promises to give you eternal life if you believe on him. And furthermore, are we looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face or somebody else when we get to that point? Heavenly Father, we pray today that you'll help us to be thankful for your word. The wisdom of Jesus is really the wisdom we have in your word today. We're thankful, Lord, that when people try to trip him up, as perhaps they may try to trip us up from time to time, that he went to your word, he properly explained it, and he really kind of turned it back on their own heads. Lord, help us to have that kind of wisdom when we try to point people to uh, correct behavior, when we try to point them to the gospel. Uh, Help us to have wisdom in your word. And then also, Lord, we're thankful that Uh, Part of the promise of our eternal life is that we will be raised up into a resurrection body, a glorious body like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, in that body, uh, we will experience uh, a relationship with you that goes far beyond what we are capable of in this life. And Lord, help us to look forward to the the wonder that you have for us in eternity and uh, keep focused on those things as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.